This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. I'd like to start with a personal view on AI. So circa late 1980s, I was a student at UCSD. My advisor was David Rummelhart, uh, who's probably the one person most responsible for this wave of AI. Uh, he reinvented backpropagation, or really invented it, but it's, you know, it's the chain rule. It's sort of hard to say he invented it. Uh, but he was applying it to neural networks, to training of layered neural networks. And he's been about a year doing that. He was next to my office and would come over and show it to me. Um, he wasn't an AI person, and, and really, nor am I. Um, I think all, both of us were interested in intelligence and understanding the science. And, but the kind of Frankenstein attitude of let's build something like us, I don't think I have it, and I don't think that Dave had it either. Uh, he bequeathed me, he, he died early, um, sadly. He would be talked about a lot more than some of the other names you're hearing if he were still around. Um, but he had Pick's disease, an affliction of the frontal cortex. Uh, he bequeathed me uh, um, the software that he wrote to do backpropagation, the very first software written to do it um, in the kind of modern era. It was called NET, and I worked on it for several years as I was a young professor at MIT. And I applied it to some problems like um, uh, kinematic chains, robots, and I kind of watched it solve the problem. I watched it, the mean square error just go down and down and down. And um, I wasn't stupefied, but I was impressed. And uh, But it, it was very clear to me there could be an era of brute force AI, and it would emerge inexorably. Okay? Uh, I had some data from a robot. It was enough to kind of get this thing to learn. It didn't know anything about robots. So it was kind of clear the writing was on the wall. It was going to happen. The last couple of years have been fast. Uh, the data got so large and, and the gradient descent worked even better than we might have suspected. But the idea that brute force AI would be possible and it would be sort of taking over and then everyone would try to making money on it, it would, you know, cause even the legal profession to get outraged and uh, activated. Um, that was clear. Um, and so I decided not to work on that. Um, I wasn't interested in changing the world at that level of that kind. I didn't want to build artificial humans and I didn't want to make a lot of money. Um, I wanted to make human welfare better. So I became an engineer in a different sense, not of engineering an artificial human, but engineering systems that work for all humans and are safe and robust, but adaptive and interesting and exciting and all that. So I worked a lot on statistics, like protection of these systems. Are there error bars? Can you talk about the uncertainty? Out of distribution things, uh, you collect some data over here, but here, here's the reality, causal inference, and on and on and on. I've worked on all these things around these things. I still think that's going on. It's going to be 20, 30 years and involving lots of you in the audience, all these other issues. Just the predictive power of these neural nets with large data, it's interesting, but it's not what everyone's talking about. Okay, what is everyone talking about? So, um, well, they're talking about the emergence of intelligence. We've, just, we've figured out intelligence at some level. Okay, we haven't. Okay, we have artifacts now that exhibit some intelligence, absolutely. They have some mental models, they do some things that are kind of, you know, beyond what we might have thought. But they're not intelligent. We haven't discovered the spark of intelligence yet. And we're not going to, I think, very soon. Okay? It's really a, and we're not going to discover it by looking at trillion parameter trained on trillion data point objects. And look inside, just like it's hard to figure it out by looking at our brain. What is intelligence? If you look at the, what's really happened in history, there have been engineering disciplines emerging every 50 years or so. And they've changed human life more than just about anything I can think of. Civil engineering, mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, and so on. And I did dig into the first one, chemical engineering, part because my father was a chemical engineer. And, uh, you know, in the 30s, there wasn't chemical engineering yet. 
But there was an understanding of what happened when you put molecules together. There was already quantum mechanics. There was fluids. There was um, you know, chemistry and so on. Um, and it was kind of clear that you could start to build factories. But it wasn't obvious that you could do it in a field, what you did in the laboratory. And in fact, when people tried, it didn't really work very well. You didn't make product. It was not economic. I would explode. Just It was very hard. Uh, but people did it for quite a while. And then, in, you know, with several decades, a uh, field of chemical engineering emerged. It became a solid field of its own with its own mathematics, its own ideas, and allowed us to start to envision how to do this in a controlled, socially useful way. It had its issues and its problems. In the 60s, we became more and more aware. But it changed life for the better. All the things we're wearing, all the things we do, or, you know, chemical engineering, medicines, et cetera. You know, it's all based on that. Um, I know less about electrical engineering, but obviously Maxwell's equations already existed before there was electrical engineering. We had a full understanding of the phenomenon at some level. We had to build modular ways of thinking about it to bring electricity into homes, to make it be safe, to make it be useful, to learn, learn to think about circuits, think about communications on top of waves, and so on and so forth. So that became electrical engineering. Those all took decades, and they started with something that was a deep understanding. Well, I think you can sort of see, we've got this thing, this engineering discipline that's emerging. It's not building factories and fields, um, or bringing electricity into homes, but it's, it's building some notion of factories, like you know, transport and healthcare and commerce and all these systems that are, that are computer networks with data flows and humans all involved in the loop in various places. Those aren't objects over there somehow that are delivering some product to us. We're in them, right? But those are the factories of the modern era. That is what we're talking about when we're talking about AI. We're not talking about we got this super intelligence over there that's gonna solve our problems. We got these massive systems that are putting us all in the mix of it. And it's just like building a factory that may or may not work. Some of these are exploding. Some of them are hurting people. Now, some of them are doing great things. Absolutely. And some of them will. Okay? But that's really what's happening. Now, I think that its emergence is being warped by this AI perspective. I don't think AI is being very helpful here. All right? So let's talk about that for a moment. All right? So this was the 1950s perspective. John McCarthy and others said... You know, rightly, um, we have this new thing called a computer. It has hardware and software. It looks like mind and brain. Let's think about what it means to put thought on a computer. I mean, that's an exciting thought. That's a philosophical aspiration. Exciting. Absolutely. And the, and the kind of slightly naive thought from a business point of view, if you will, or a technological point of view is, let's understand intelligence and then great things will happen. Now, that looks like a bit of a cartoon, but if you go today to DeepMind and look at their front page, it's, it's solving intelligence and then we'll solve, you know, great things will happen. That's, that's basically it. The naivete is breathtaking. All right, so uh, we were going to solve intelligence, whatever that might mean. Um, and we all had to build autonomous systems. Why, did, why autonomy? Where'd that come from? Well, not so clear, but. If your agent is tethered to a human, it's kind of hard to brag that you've created an artificial intelligent agent. That's really kind of a fundamental. Now, I agree there are some, there are some cases like going into a burning building or going up to Mars where it would be nice to have them be completely autonomous. But most intelligence should be linked. Airplanes should not be autonomous. They should be linked and federated so they're safe. Cars should not be autonomous. They should be linked and federated and communicated even, you know, all part of a system that was designed and so on. Very few things should be autonomous. They should be linked. Okay, so I think this is actually a very unhelpful thing that was put in there without much thought. All right, so let me go back to this slide. So here's my main message here. It's kind of an obvious one. But intelligence is as much about the collective as it is about the individual. Now, there's two points being made here, two allied but different ones. One of them, which I think is really interesting, is that 
intelligence, we don't really know what it is, but it doesn't just have to do with the human brain and mind. Markets are intelligent. They bring food into cities around the world every day, 365 days a year, no rain or shine for, for decades, for centuries. That's an intelligent thing to be doing. That market itself is intelligent in ways that we aren't individually. Okay? And then ant colonies are intelligent and blah, blah, blah. So this is not a new thought, you know, that collectives can be intelligent in ways that you don't see in each individual. And I don't think we've actually thought about that enough. We kind of study the ant colonies and we think about the markets and all that, but we don't realize that we could create brand new kind of collectives that could be really amazing. And we should think about the intelligence at that level instead of trying to replace a single human being with this computer. The other part is even if we're putting in computers into our midst, it's not about making the computer happy or making the person who built the computer rich. It's about making the collective happy. Okay? So we should, our goals and our aspiration be, it should be at the level of collectivity. So for setting goals for whatever you want to call this emerging engineering field, if you want to call it AI, fine. I don't like that, but whatever. Um, you should be thinking in terms of the collective as you're designing your system. Not thinking about, oh, did my agent speak better language than a human being or did it beat people in chess or blah, blah, blah. That's just... That was maybe in the 1950s, okay, but now it's breathtakingly naive. Um, mimicry of human beings is a poor way to think about the implications for collectives. Autonomy, to me, is a look more, no hands aspiration. You know, again, these are slightly overly strong, but, um, but there are many attendant dangers, and I'm going to get into that a little bit more on the next slide. And then I'm also going to get into this other point about there should be new forms of collectives if we think about this. All right, so... There's a lot of further reading if you want to do on, on some of my perspectives that evolved over several decades, but I, I eventually wrote a couple of papers at this level that weren't just theorem proving. Um, and I'll say a little bit more, more at the first two on the next slide. And then the third one is a collective. Um, here's some of my colleagues, real social scientists. And we wrote a paper two years ago that's the title of my talk. And one of the main points in there is about this autonomy issue. Why autonomy? And the social science side of that, which I was really fantastic, is that autonomy has a real danger, which is that if it's going to be autonomous, like ChatGPT, it's kind of got to be built by a small number of people, because if it's built by everybody, somehow it's not really that intelligent. Like Wikipedia is not intelligent. Right? Everybody built it. Um, so it kind of has a tendency to concentrate the development of this technology in the hands of smaller people. It's just kind of a natural small numbers to people. And in fact, open AI, you know, it was supposed to be open and distributed. I think it's, no, it's not open now. It's closed. And that's continuing. So don't believe it, right? When you talk about we are going to solve the world's problems, we, we know everything. It, it, you know, it's, it's, it's dangerous. And these people will tell you that even better than I will. I do want to dig into a little bit about the points I was making in these two articles. Just very briefly, I don't want to dig into this too much, but there's John McCarthy, who in the 1950s, you know, quite reasonably had this exciting aspiration of thought in a computer. We don't have thought in a computer. We have gradient descent that kind of mimics things in amazing ways, but it's not thought yet. Probably won't be for a while. I think what really happened in the last 40 years is really what Doug Engelbart was talking about, intelligence augmentation, like search engines and recommendation systems and all that. They are objects that are not intelligent in themselves. They index websites and all that, but they made all of us more intelligent. They helped the collective. All right? And they weren't called AI, and there was not quite as much hype not even nearly as there is now. There was all the fear and stuff. But I think they had more impact than our current wave of AI is going to have, frankly. Trillion dollar boost to economy and so on. 
I think in the meantime, however, this is emerging. And so for a computer scientist, you know, think the Internet of Things, but for an economist, think markets and think new data flows and kind of, you know, new ways of linking human beings. And I'm going to talk mostly about this in really my talk. This is where I think it's at. This is to me what's exciting about the current era, not that. All right, so um, let me now move a little away from provocative opinions and more towards actual research. Um, so as a machine learning person, if you go into machine learning conferences, you say, you, you folks are thinking about this, right? About collectives and you know, and uh, not just centralizing everything and creating a superhuman intelligence and all that stuff. And they say, yeah, well, things like federated learning. You know, here's federated learning. You've got a federated a server and it's trying to collect data from a bunch of edge devices, and it takes in all that data and it builds a better model than you could build with each individual. And then that's wonderful, isn't it? No. Okay. So what's wrong with this picture? I'm going to kind of dig into it. But this came from Google, and that's Google sitting up there. And Google is happily collecting everybody's data, telling everybody that, that we're going to make great use of this data. We're going to give you a model that will be great with like speech recognition or vision, whatever. Okay, there's some truth to that. It's not completely ridiculous. Um, but it's missing the fact that these are real agents who have their own interests and their own data, and they have their own desire to have an economically valued lifestyle based on that partly. And they're not being included in this, in this vision. So the ML part of this is just about, hey, can we get gradients cheaply up to here and compress and make sure all this thing kind of works as an ML thing? It's not nearly enough to be thinking about society. All right, so in fact, really, the nodes in these graphs are often people. Their data is not just something to be streamed and aggregated. It might be music or a novel or something. And I know, Pam, next week we'll talk more about that. People's creative acts are sitting there and being ingested and something kind of missing. They may want to get benefits out of this. They may want to opt in. Uh, if they get benefits, not just opt in because you're being protected or opt in because you like it or, or opt out because you don't like it, but because there's some benefit to be had for you. Okay, so this is kind of the field that I work in now. Um, mechanism aware learning, learning aware mechanisms, and that's what I want to talk about the rest of the talk. Um, just to say as an academic, I try to think about organizations and things like CDSS, very proud of that entity tries to bring some of these thoughts into a collective entity for all of campus. Um, but just to say that the, I think these are three disciplines that are particularly important to emphasize in this discussion. Certainly computer science, as we've alluded to. Um, but also definitely statistics. This is kind of about the algorithms, this is about the uncertainty and you know the decisions. And the two of them have a bipartite relationship, that's called machine learning. It's all machine learning needs. Okay. And machine learning hasn't taught much about the social and about the incentives and all that, but that's, there's a field that does. That's called economics. And economics has long had an alliance with statistics called econometrics. But it's mostly about measuring the economy and not so much about building algorithms and mechanisms that do things, like over here. I mean, there certainly is a part of it, but that's really more mechanism design, different part of economics. But economics and computer science have had an alliance. That's called algorithm game theory, where you talk about the mechanisms and the algorithms and all that. So three nice bipartite relationships in, in academia. This thing has almost no statistics. This thing has almost none of this. This thing has almost none of this. Okay, so we've missed it. There's a triad that all has to come together. All right, and this is not a provocative thing to say. If you go into any industry now that's working at sufficient scale with real impact on the real world, take an Amazon or whatever, all three of those disciplines are around the table on every real world problem they try to solve. Often it's often operations research people who kind of have that tri triad already in their brains. And then there's, of course, around this applied math and 
sociology, you know, all the fields are represented here. This was just to kind of pick out three that I think are particularly important. All right, now that's the academic side. I tend to be driven more about what's happening in the real world. What are we trying to do in the real world? This is Steve Stout. He's a, a friend of mine. Um, he's somebody I admire deeply. He's a legendary hip hop producer, entrepreneur. Um, he and I talked several years ago about this idea of information technology should be about empowering collectives and it should be about building multi-way markets. And um, that has flowered into a company called United Masters. I'm on the board there. I'm a scientific advisor and, and on the board. Um, and it's thinking about music in a different way. So music nowadays, more people are listening to it than ever before in history, by a factor of a thousand. More people are making it than, more than, than ever in history by a factor of a thousand. And here's the amazing thing. If you look at the data, 95% of the songs listened to today around the world were written by people you never heard of and written in the last six months. Wow, something amazing is happening. That's great. So it's not just everyone's listening to the Beatles or Beyonce. Not at all. But the Beatles and Beyonce are getting still paid huge amounts of money. And all the people that are writing and doing actual music are not getting paid anything, roughly. Occasionally, if they get enough streams, the payment on streams on Spotify is like 0.0002 cents or something ridiculous like that. Okay, so there's no market, and that means there's no jobs. And actually, most of these people doing these songs are 16 to 19-year-olds kind of living in the inner city. Should be a job. This should be what they're really good at. It's what people are listening to. Why isn't there? Well, so United Masters thought about that and thought, okay, let's just minimally start to set up an actual two-way market. That's what data should be doing. We're just not taking your song and streaming it to, with, with Spotify. Spotify streams it to people. Spotify creates a subscription or advertising model, makes money, and then maybe throws a little bit back at the producers. No. Let's think, okay, producer relationship directly to who's listening to me. So at the beginning of the week, a United Masters artist gets to see uh, a dashboard. Here's a map of the United States. They see 10,000 people listen to my songs in Dubuque, say. Never even been to there, but I can imagine it's a place. And, um, and they tell the people, the venue owners there, look, I'm popular. They see that. Yeah, why don't you come give a show? You can make some money. Right? And then you can be even more connected. You could go play at people's weddings, blah, blah, blah. It's a two-way market. Right? So a lot of people bought into this. A lot of young musicians did not sign with record companies, and a lot of are actually well-known ones. There's now over 2 million artists who signed with United Masters. It's really working. Then Steve had the brilliant idea, let's make it a three-way market. Uh, so he went to the NBA, National Basketball Association, and said, we got this two-way market. You want in. All the songs that you're streaming on the NBA website, you're it's Beyonce and Kanye or whatever, you're paying them vast amounts of money. Why don't you have these songs? People like them more. They're more fresh and all that. NBA signed a contract, and now all the music on the NBA website is coming from United Masters artists. And when you listen to one of them, you, the, the, the artist gets, gets the money. Not Spotify or somebody in between. Okay, so this is, this is cool. This is changing the world. This is changing uh, music. And this is not just the US. This can be done, obviously, in Brazil, Africa, China, you name it. And it can create jobs. This can create like a million jobs, I think. That feels quite reasonable. We've had lots of discussions about this in each country. Okay, so thinking about AI in this way, yes, some jobs will be lost, but hey, we can also create new jobs. Okay, so that was the first part of my talk. Um, second part, that's the motivation. That's why I do what I do. Okay? Second part is, what are you going to do with that? So I'm an academic and a researcher. I want to do actual mathematics. And I want to write algorithms, and I want to make students get excited about this. Um, and I don't want to have them just try things out and be empirical. I want them to actually think about foundations, do, do actual theorems and so on. Okay, so here's some of the things I've been working on for the last 10, 15 years. 
Um, a lot of those words will look a little familiar, but most of them not. This is not the standard AI list of things. All right. I'm going to emphasize three of them in this talk quickly. We just let me say something about the first one. A lot of the work in um, machine learning, really, in fact, when we say AI, just to be clear, almost all the actual progress has been in machine learning. The classical AI story is not what's led to the progress. And those people call themselves now everybody's AI, aren't we? Yeah. The machine learning people have resisted, resisted that, but it's kind of hard to resist. It's, it's a PR stunt. Mostly companies like Google made, you know, changed from ML to AI at some point. The ML people are really great at finding Optima. We can go downhill in you know, billion-dimensional space with saddle points, and we can avoid them. We can proof theorems, and we can, it actually works. All right? We're really good at that, but real economic systems with multiple competing agents and all that are not about optimization. That would be central planning. That doesn't work. It's about equilibria, and it's about not static equilibria, dynamic equilibria, and it's about the algorithms that do that and, and making those good and real. Very little research on that. There is some. Stochastic extra gradient methods and so on. A couple of my students in the audience are real world experts on that. Uh, but much less than you would expect, and it's partly because of this perspective. It's all about optimizing from a single agent point of view. Um, this is a topic that's Berkeley, it's a Berkeley highlight right now, conformal prediction, all that. My group and others are really working on that. And this is an attempt to really bring in the economics folks, um, you know, partner with them going forward more. But anyway, I'm going to talk about these three others. These are just three think choices I thought were fun to talk about, partly because I get to sort of show pictures of some of my great students and postdocs. So the, this is uh, Stephen Bates, who's a postdoc here. Michael's actually down in South Bay, and then Jake was a student here. Um, and so this is a, 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 the, the, I'm going to give three vignettes in the rest of the talk, all that blend machine learning, which is already a bit of a blend, with economics, with something. And when we say economics, really that mostly means incentives. Thinking about, okay, I'm going to treat you seriously, you agent. You have, you have to be talked about in your language, your utilities. And I want to incentivize and others make you want to be involved, not just tell you to be involved or hope you'll be involved. All right, so there's an area I'll talk about of, of, of economics called contract theory uh, that has not been kind of playing together with machine learning. And it's a real opportunity here. That's what we're going to talk about. Uh, so just very briefly, um, the theory of incentives, there's books on this, you know, uh, has several branches. Auctions are certainly a branch of the theory of incentives. Um, and you all know about auctions. You probably know less, though, about another branch called contract theory. Um, it's a asymmetric situation, which is a little bit rare for economics. Most things are kind of symmetric, you know, crossing curves and equilibria, Nash equilibria, and so on. But here it's asymmetric. Uh, we have a principal who wants to get something done, but they don't have the, the knowledge or the willpower or the resources to do it themselves. So they want to get some agents to help them out. Now, the agents know more than they do, all right? But now there's a question of how much am I going to incentivize you, how much am I going to pay you for the job you're doing, right? And I could say, well, how much do you know? How skilled are you? All right, Jennifer, I'm going to pay you for being a, uh, a dean. How skilled are you? The best. The best, exactly. So I'm going to give you a really high price. Now, mm, she was incentivized to have her person next to her say that. So I really want to know how good you are. You're not going to tell me, obviously, all right? So pricing things when we have an asymmetry information is just very hard. Right? So you kind of know what they worked out. This is in the 60s. They revolutionized the aircraft industry, and you all know the result. There's not one price for every seat on the airplane. And that's kind of obvious why. 
right? I'm taking an airplane from here down to Los Angeles. There are maybe a few people who really need to get there today. Uh, they really want to get there, and they'll pay $1,000, or, or their business class, and then someone else is paying, not business, they're business people, someone else is paying, so they're happy to pay 1000 so on. All right, so what I might do is set a price of, you know, 900 to kind of coax them to buy the ticket. Uh, they're happy, they get the extra $100 of surplus, and then I get them on my airplane, and they, you know, blah, blah, great. But now, half my airplane's empty, right? And that's not going to actually be a good business model. So, so what I could do is say, fill the rest of it with people. I offer them, you know, for $100, you can be on. But now the, the first class people would get mad, right? It was this, this the same deal. Um, so what they did, they created, of course, different fare classes. So they created what's called a contract or a menu of contracts, service price, service price, service price. And critically, they give that same menu to everybody. So it's legal. It's not price discrimination illegally. And people then self-select. And so here's the amazing thing for the students in the room. You can't believe this, but there are people for who for a little glass of red wine and being first in line will pay $1,000 to get on an airplane. And they'll feel good about it. They'll feel so good about it. All right? And the, those of you who are willing to do that will be amazed. There are people who are happy to only pay $100 and they don't get the glass of red wine and they have to sit in the back. Everybody's actually happy. They self-selected. Now, I had to set up the menu correctly. If I set up the menu wrong, then these people are going to pretend to be these people and so on. So anyway, the contract theory people work this out. So it sounds like didn't you know we should be doing this in machine learning? Well, the problem is there's no data here. It's all you know smart people writing down uh, values and probability distributions and curves across at certain places, and they design the thing that way. So that worked for the airline industry, but it's not going to work for us going forward. It's not it's not the right model. All right, so. Um, we, we have been working on this, and here's our, one of our killer apps for this, the uh, clinical trials. So as you probably all know, tens of millions of dollars are spent every year on clinical trials uh, for all kinds of diseases, literally, you know, tens of millions. And what, is, what are these things? Well, these are statistical tests that the FDA runs. And the FDA is a statistical entity. It's trying to do good, false, positive control, type 1, type 2 area control, to make sure that most of the drugs that go on the market are not false positive. They were actually a good drug. So that, that's why you have to get like 36,000 people to get a vaccine, you know, to make sure that it's not false positive. All right. So, um, but that statistical perspective is not enough for this problem. This is really a contract theory problem because the um, FDA is not deciding what are the candidate drugs to test, some randomly picking some candidates. Those candidate drugs are coming from the drug companies. And you got to think about why are they going to send you certain candidates and not others? And what kind of, what kind of candidates are they going to send in? All right? They have private information. They're not willing just to tell the FDA how good their drug is. If I go to you and say, hey, how good is your drug? Because I want to price various things. I want to get a license. I want to decide how many people to test and so on. You know, we put money into all this stuff. They're going to lie. Okay? Lying is not a bad thing, by the way. Lying just means that there's an information asymmetry you think you should be able to exploit. Why take that right away from me? All right, so here's a statistical protocol. If it's a bad drug... Doesn't mean really it's gonna hurt people. The, the drug company does test that it doesn't hurt people, but it may not do anything. And most drugs on the market don't actually do anything, not most, but many, all right? Uh, let's suppose it's one of those drugs. Well, the FDA will ensure you that the false discovery rate, the probability of approving given that it's a bad drug is only 0.05. Um, and they will also assure that if it happens to be a good drug, they will discover that fact with probably 0.8. Um, these numbers aren't exactly right, but this is kind of st standard numbers for industry for type 1, type 2 control. So is this a good protocol? Well, yeah, it's optimal 
in a statistical sense. It's the Neyman Pearson test. Okay? But is it actually a good protocol? No. So now let's put in, bring in the economics. Suppose that a small profit is be, to be made for this drug. So it costs $20 million to run the clinical trial. And if you're approved, let's say you'll make $200 million. So it's not a very big market, a relatively small one. All right, now we can do a calculation, both the FDA and the CEO of the drug company. They can do this calculation. If the drug happened to be bad, they don't know if it is or not. Neither side knows. But if it were, counterfactually, the expected profit would be minus $10 million. The CEO could do that calculation. They can say, oh, boy, don't send drugs up there and pay the $20 million to, to, to pay to play unless you're really sure it's a pretty good drug. How can you really be sure? Well, you gather some more data internally. You put your best engineers on it and so on. And then you don't tell the FDA that. You still send it up hoping for a false positive if, if, if it's not a good drug. Okay. All right. So, uh, but that's bad fit and bad number. So you don't want to hope too much for false positives. You're going to lose a lot of money. So that mostly you will send only the drugs that look really good. If we were working that regime, things would be great. But we're not. We're probably more working in this regime. $20 million to run the trial. If you're approved, $2 billion. That's more like ibuprofen or something. Um, so if you do the same exact calculation on both sides, this is not a hidden calculation, the expected profit, if it were a bad drug, was $80 million. Right, so you want to then send as many candidates up to the FDA as possible. They're going to test a lot of things. They'll do their type 1 air, air control, but there will be some false positives. Your drug will in the market. You'll make that amount of money for a few years, and then people will kind of say, then something else will come and displace you. And you didn't hurt anybody. You made a lot of money. That's what happens. All right, so how do you fix this? Well, you just have to realize that this is a contract problem, and it's got a statistical side to it. You blend the two fields. All right, so I'm not going to get into details. We have a paper on this, but here is our new approach to statistical contract. We call this statistical contract theory. Uh, there's a protocol which you now, as an agent, a drug company, can opt into or not. If you don't opt in, you just, fine, you walk away. If you opt in, you pay a, a reservation price R. Right? Then I give you a menu of, of functions. I'll say a little bit more about that. Um, they kind of uh, turn the random you know, clinical trial result into a utility for you. That's what they are. And there's a price to pay for each one of them. So that's standard contract theory to do this and this, but this is new. So now we have a statistical trial, and it yields a random variable that's drawn from distribution that depends on the true parameter that no one actually knows. Right? But we draw the random variable. We do the clinical trial. All right? And now we get payoffs. So the agent gets a payoff, which just depends on their choice of function from the menu, the FDA gets utility that depends on the choice of function from the menu plus the truth. Because the FDA, if they approve a lot of bad drugs, over time people will realize this and they'll be mad at the FDA. Okay, that is the right way to design these things. All right, and it's straightforward at some level. We now prove some theorems about this. First of all, this is too busy of a slide, I don't want to get into details, but if you're going to do any of this kind of work, you have to talk about incentive alignment. Are people win? Are people willing to, you know, wanting to to play? And there's basically a little condition saying, under the null hypothesis, when you're a bad drug, this kind of, you know, how much you would make minus your reservation price has got to be negative. Okay, you don't want the FDA just to be losing money. Um, and um, anyway, you can set up that that very natural definition of incentive compatibility. And now, here's kind of an amazing fact: there is an object in statistics called an e-value. It's like a p-value, but p-values have a lot, some problems. They're not terrible objects, but they don't kind of aggregate very well. Uh, it's a tail probability under the null hypothesis. That's a p-value. An e-value is a random variable whose expectation under the null hypothesis is less than or equal to 1. 
with an expectation rather than a tail probability. It behaves better under aggregation. It looks a bit like a martingale. It is. And therefore, you can do it over time and stop when you want. Kind of has a lot of nice properties. So statisticians know about this. It's not that common to know about it, but it's known. It's the kind of thing we try to teach at the undergraduate level, by the way, in the data science classes. Um, and we have a theorem now which says that a contract is incentive aligned, an economics contract theory concept, if and only if all payoff functions are e-values. So we have a characterization now of optimal contracts. These link the two fields at their foundations and allows you to start to design optimal contracts. All right, so we've been doing this in various domains. We went back to federated learning. We said, what if these are agents that need to be incentivized? What if there's some value that economic value that passes back and forth? How do we structure the contracts for that situation? And we now have a paper. Um, Pranith Karimareddy, Winshul Go, and me wrote a paper on this, basically adapting uh, the theory to this. And, and it really kind of solves the free riding problem, which is that um, if I have some good data and I could send it up there, but you know, I have a little privacy loss and you know, it costs me money to do it. But I know Eli is sitting next to me and he has some of the same data that I have. I'm just going to watch Eli send up the data, and I'm not going to send it if he's sending it. It's free writing. Uh, this, this solves that problem, or it gives you leverage on that problem. Okay. Uh, that was vignette number one. Vignette number two and three will be a little shorter. Uh, the main thing about that vignette was just that economics is really brought together with machine learning, okay, at their core, and we're solving a real-world problem by doing that that otherwise would not be solved. We'd just be throwing stuff out there, hoping it works. All right, uh, this is a little bit more of an academic exercise, but I really like it. I get to, again, show two of my great students, this is Lydia and Horia. Uh, this is competing bandits and matching markets. There's the learning side, there's the economic side. And I just want to show you how these two ideas come together. In learning, one of the key problems is exploration and exploitation. Um, we're not seeing that in the current generation of ChatGPT. It's just exploiting. It takes all this data and it just, uses the training data. But in real life, you don't know what the right answer is, and you have to kind of explore a little bit and give up a little utility to try to try things out and share that information with others. If you talk about a collective, there's lots of this kind of sharing and exploring together. Okay. Uh, so anyway, the bandit algorithms are, are a perfect model of this. Um, you know, an agent is uh, you know, choosing one of the choices and getting a reward. There's some unknown reward distribution behind that. They, choose, try, they maybe try another one. Um, and they get a reward, and they're trying to figure out which uh, of the arms has the highest mean reward. Okay. So this A-B test in industry, this is being done 10,000 times a day in every industry, uh, testing out different options and collecting data and so on. Uh, so you want algorithms that don't just, they, they don't know the op optimal action a priori, they have to try things out, but if they try things out too much, they don't hone in on the one that gives them a lot of reward, so there's a trade-off, exploration, exploitation. And there are optimal algorithms for this. One of them is known as UCB, uh, not University of California Berkeley, it's upper confidence bound. You maintain a statistical confidence interval on each of these objects, the mean rewards. Uh, you update that interval over time. Um, and now you take the upper bound on the confidence interval and you pick the arm that has the highest upper bound. All right, so if you take our classes, you'd learn all about why this is a reasonable thing to do. In some ways it's kind of obvious that if it has a high upper bound, that likely means it has a high reward. It's probably not a bad thing to choose. Or it could have a very big uncertainty, so you should choose it to knock down your uncertainty. Okay, anyway, it has a optimal regret bound, you know, it converges quickly and so on and so forth. Lots to say about that. All right, that was the learning side. Uh, again, it's not the ChatGPT kind of learning, it's a different kind, but we study this just as much as we do the, the gradient descent algorithms. 
On the economic side, there have been Nobel Prizes given for matching markets, Galen Shapley and others. Um, you have buyers on one side and sellers on the other. I think you all know about these things. You write down your preferences a priori on both sides, and then there's a matching algorithm that kind of works out a stable match, an equilibrium. And it's not an optimum, it's an equilibrium. Okay, great. So this is being applied in lots and lots of real-world problems. That's the you know, kidney matching and you know, college admissions and so on. But the problem is, for a lot of the problems we're interested in, you have to write down all your preferences a priori. Who wants to do that? All right, I can maybe do it for colleges, but even there, it's kind of hard. I can't do it for restaurants in Shanghai the first time I go to Shanghai or books I'd like to read, or, or whatever. It's just crazy. So the only way out here is to have an algorithm that sort of explores and exploits together, but in a market context. And that's actually an advantage, because if lots of people are exploring and exploring together, we can share information and we can co converge more quickly. OK, so I hope you could sort of see we want to have multiple agents in these matching markets. right? And so we have a human and a bear. In most audiences, people would go for the human, but here, I don't know. Um, let's suppose they both pick arm two at some point. Now we have competition, right? That's the real life. A lot of the modern AI people don't think about competition. They think there's going to be surplus in, ad infinitum. We don't have to worry about scarcity ever again. Nonsense. There's always going to be scarcity. All right, so if we both pick the same arm, uh, who wins? Well, let's suppose, well, you don't get both. We're not going to double. We're not going to suddenly generate more value. Um, arm two has some say in the matter, and suppose they pick the bear. So the bear gets the reward, and the human gets nothing. Human says, oh, I like that arm, but I see that when I pick that arm, the bear also seems to like that arm, and the bear seems to win because the, you know, the arm prefers the bear. So what should I do? I should explore more than I otherwise would. I should try some other arms a little more. That says I should, will have higher regret because of competition. And so now as a mathematics person, Lydia and Hori and me sat down and said, well, can we get the regret bound and you know, characterize how much you lose from competition? You know, how can you mitigate all that, and how, what are the trade-offs? And so we did all of that, and there are papers on this. So there's this notion of banded markets, and I'm just going to show one equation here, which is this is a regret bound. Uh, it goes only up as logarithm of the number of trials. That's fantastic. That's optimal. Um, and if there's a small gap between multiple agents, that number is small, and you get a larger regret. Um, but it's only a constant. It's not a function of the number of trials. It's only a constant. So competition hurts you, but only in a constant sense. Okay. Um, anyway, so there's lots more work of this kind to do in this topic. Um, it's somehow classical, but pretty interesting, and allows you to start thinking about social networks blended together with market mechanisms, blended together with learning. Um, and again, there's almost no literature on most of these things. All right, so then last topic. What am I doing? Yeah. Um, so, so I don't know if any of you are in the audience, but um, here are four of the current people in my group. Um, Anastasios, Stephen again, Clara and Tiana. And I'm just going to briefly tell you about a topic called prediction-powered inference. Um, it's, again, trying to bring kind of engineering care to prediction systems. So we have all these prediction systems that are just kind of being thrown out there. They're not calibrated. And uh, they may be highly accurate in some sense. They may be striking to look at, but they're not calibrated. What does that mean? Um, well, here, here's an example. You know, um, here are proteins, and we have a, a system called AlphaFold, which has you know, won, won the competition. You know, it's, it's better than anything else. It, it does prediction of protein structure amazingly well. That is progress. It's amazing. It's great. But now, how are you going to use that in real life? How should biologists use it? 
Um, well, you know, instead of having to spend a lot of time in the lab, we're, we now, after all these years, have hundreds of thousands of uh, crystallized or of amino acid sequence with their structures known. You can now get hundreds of millions of structures predicted today. That sounds, it's great, it is great, but here's a problem. So here's a paper, a pretty interesting paper. It was published in 2004. It's studying the relationship between intrinsic disorder in a protein. That's kind of where the quantum effects are big enough that you see some still vibrations. It's not a full structure. Um, that's been known for a long time that exists. Is it important biologically? Well, who knows? But there was a paper that thought maybe it's related to phosphorylation, which is a very important biological notion, kind of, you know, um, uh, structure on, on proteins. Um, but they didn't have enough data. Um, so they couldn't do it. That's all the structures they had in 2004. They couldn't actually assay this statistical hypothesis test, yes or no, there's an association. All right, so uh, suddenly we have all these structures coming from AlphaFold. So someone wrote a paper that pumped that into a paper, into an analysis, and interestingly, didn't even use the real data at all because they had all these, it was just so many of these now AlphaFold structures, and they're so good, so they pumped them in there. All right, so what do I mean pumping in there? Well, they did a hypothesis test. Is there a relationship between intrinsic disorder and phosphorylation based on the results from AlphaFold, all the protein structures? Okay, and they got a result. Here's the statistical entity they're trying to test. This is the population functional probability of intrinsic disorder given phosphorylation and not that. All right, so you replace this now with predictions. And this is not happening not just in this field, but all throughout science. People are, you know, the astrophysicists and so on, replace, instead of data, put in prediction. Hope that it works. Okay, so I kind of hope you can sort of see there's a problem here. Um, you know, some of the predictions are actually wrong, and so how does that kind of feed into the rest of the, the, the issue? All right, so we've done a number of experiments, and um, I'm going to show you some, a number of results. They all have the following form. Uh, we did large Monte Carlo simulations to kind of get a notion of ground truth we could test against. Here's the ground truth of that IDR ratio. Um, you know, if it was one, there's no association. If it's bigger than one, there's an association. There's the ground truth, so it looks like there really is an association of this data. Here is the confidence interval from the alpha fold predictions. So if you, you look, just look at that, you don't know the ground truth. You look at that, you say, wow, I have nailed the problem. Look how small my confidence interval is. I'm totally confident. I'm far away from one. And that's what they did in this paper, of course. Right? Now, if you're a careful statistician, you look at this and say, no, no, don't do that. You can't trust that stuff. Just take the stuff where you have ground truth data and do your confidence interval on that. That's the gray region. So it's huge and worrisome. It, cover, it covers one. You can't assert that there's actually a significant difference. Oops. All right, so we've developed a new procedure called prediction-powered inference, which gets the best of both worlds. Our intervals cover the truth, but they make use of this data. And it's a really easy little idea, and I may run out of time and, not, and leave you. There's a paper now we're preparing. Oh, wait, it's on the archive. All of this is on the archive. Um, but I'm going to try to give you a quick flavor of what it is. But I kind of like the example as much as anything. Uh, so just briefly, here's kind of the setup. It looks like semi-supervised learning, but it's not. You have some labeled data, and you have predictions, and you have vast amounts of unlabeled data, and you have these predictions. And you'd like to design a confidence interval that covers the truth with some asserted probability. The classical approach would be to throw away the predictions because you can't trust them. The imputed approach would be to trust all the predictions. And we, we don't think that either is the correct thing to do. We want the best of both worlds. Here's another example. This was a vote in San Francisco a few years ago. Matt Haney against somebody. I don't remember what this is about. This is just mean estimation. Who had the most votes? Some of the ballots are messed up. 
Right? So you run computer vision algorithms on this to make a prediction about what the actual vote was. That's right. People, you can do that. Uh, so it's the same kind of problem. Um, and here's what happens. If you use all the computer vision uh, labeled stuff, you get this confidence interval. Oops, the truth is over here. All right? Here's the throw away all the predictions and just use the only the labels. And here's our new approach. I, I can tell you which one I would prefer, especially because there's a theorem behind this one. Um, I don't know if you can see this, but uh, finding spiral galaxies with computer vision, a fantastic problem. Look at a part of the sky. Is that a spiral galaxy or not? You can label a bunch of them, but now you can make huge numbers of predictions. People are doing this. And so, same thing. Um, so, we did that. And uh, here is the computer vision confidence interval. Here's the truth. And here is our, our new procedure. Um, gene expression, trying to decide using the transformer model. Uh, trying to decide whether a certain promoter region leads to expression or not. Kind of a good classical biology problem. Um, oops. Terrible. Just really terrible. Uh, we're sending this to science, by the way, hoping that science will look at this. Here's another one. California census uh, trying to estimate some uh, coefficient of income when predicting whether a person has private health insurance or not. Um, look how terrible that is. Okay, so... Um, Oh, yeah, my favorite example. This is Clara, who I think, who does uh, lots of marine biology and other things. A really important problem is uh, to, to say how good, a, uh, how healthy the ocean is, is you, how much plankton do you have. But if you just start gathering samples, it's very hard to distinguish between plankton and detritus. The thing on the right is detritus. So you can run algorithms that make a prediction. They're pretty good accuracy-wise, but do they give good confidence intervals? Uh, as you probably expect by this time and time, not so good, but not so terrible. And here's kind of interesting, the throwaway, the predictions thing is doing pretty bad. We still are not great, but we're honest. All right. Um, let me just, on the one picture, sort of give you a little flavor of the idea. It's kind of an interesting, somewhat newish idea in statistics. I'd, I'd call it even new. Uh, I think the, the, the small sample survey literature had some of this, but, but it's new. Um, and it's not that hard to think about. So there is a truth out there, and we get this uh, you know, prediction version of that, which is, has a bias. The bias, if I had the whole population, I could just compute the bias. It's some number. So some areas of statistics say, okay, compute the bias. Not, don't compute it. Estimate the bias. It's just a statistic, you know, statistics. And then bias correct. When you do that, often you get kind of worse results, strangely enough because you've added variance. It's kind of known in statistics. But it's still bias correcting is a thing, and you should do it. That's not what we're doing. We're doing something different, which I think is pretty cool. And all credit is due to my four colleagues here. Um, we take this object, this expectation, that's what we're trying to estimate. And we don't just pick a point estimate of that object. We take a confidence interval on the bias. You can do that. It's perfectly fine in modern statistics to get confidence intervals on the bias. All right, so that's what's happening here. There's a confidence interval on the bias. And that object R, we call it a rectifier, uh, is an object which takes the point estimate here and gets a, builds a confidence interval for it. Um, and now you pump all of the, um, um, the you, you pump this, this prediction through the confidence interval on the rectifier to get confidence on the corrected values. Okay, so you're using a confidence interval to correct. And so you get a new set we call CPP over there, which is a, uh, a confidence interval on predictions based on the bias, based on the confidence interval on the bias. Okay? So you probably 
or not, if some of you are understanding that, some of you are not, but there's a short paper on this, which uh, you'll, you'll see the results, uh, and the proof is not that hard. Um, okay, so let me just show you. That's that is. So all those little green things I showed you there are all doing that, and the amount of code here is about this much. So I just think this should be just standard. This should be part of any pipeline that's doing science with uh, predictive models. Okay, so um, actually here's some of the math, and here's the final theorem that says these new objects do in fact give you statistical coverage um, provably. Uh, and also, by the way, this is the gradient right here. So the entire, for all of these applications, the entire procedure is just using gradients. And if you're a machine learning person, you know how important and good that is. Okay, so I'm finished. Um, I'm just going to throw that slide back up there again, because this was a slide that I do want to emphasize, um, that in our era, um, I think it's important, especially for younger people, to sort of say, what are we doing? And I think it's important to be responsible that we are building really exciting new things, we're having an impact worldwide, but you need to think about that bigger object, you know, the collective, and what is it, and how could we build new collectives? I didn't spend that much time on the social science thing about new collectives, uh, but I do want to inspire you to sort of think more about that. My social science colleagues on that paper about how AI fellows spent some fair amount of time in that paper thinking about it. Um, you know, there are new kind of deliberative councils out there. Taiwan has them. You know, Ireland has done them, where people use data and interactive protocols and, you know, computer analysis to help deliberation among humans. There's, you know, new kind of ways of thinking about democracy that do this. Um, I was talking to my spouse the other day about, you know, what's kind of, what are intelligent kind of collective things to do? What are, and she said, well, how about like you know, intelligent migration? And I thought that was a very thoughtful thing to say. Yeah, intelligent migration. What would that mean? I don't know, but it sounds very interesting to think about. No one thinks like that. They just think migration is bad or good. You know, but, but what would that mean? And, you know, intelligent, all kinds of things like that. You know, what are, what are, um, what are the consequences of thinking that way? Um, so I am a little irritated about our era. You know, I've been doing this for 30, 40 years. I'm very irritated that the AI hype wave has come. Not that it's wrong fundamentally, it, it's, it's great. It's, there's a lot of great stuff behind it. But it has completely obscured the clarity of what we're doing and why and what we can do and not do. We will have yet more chat GBTs, it'll yet be more brute force AI. Um, you know, but we should be thinking about them in the right frame of mind and, and thinking about what, what we're really doing in 20, 30 years. We've took the right path to kind of exploit those in the right way. Thank you. been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.